Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. Today, in our Viewer's Choice Award series, we're going to revisit the fourth most viewed sermon that I've ever preached at Journey. It's a message that I did back in 2013 about a man that God used to be a difference maker at a critical time in the life of the nation of Israel named Nehemiah. Now, much like the message with Joseph that we featured last week, I did an entire series of messages on the life of Nehemiah several years ago. That series was called High Definition Living, Bringing Clarity to Your Life's Vision. And I encourage you to go back and check out some of those messages on our YouTube channel or our website, and you'll get a much more in-depth look at Nehemiah's story. The message today is really a high-level overview of Nehemiah's role in God's redemptive story. Now, let me just say this. When I first did this message, I ran across a really goofy video by a couple of characters who call themselves the Fabulous Bentley Brothers. It's so cheesy, it's so corny, it's so cringeworthy, I have to show you some of it. <laughs> so prepare yourself, take a look at this. There was a time when the wall of Jerusalem lay in ruin and disarray. Then Nehemiah said, hey, when will my people get aid? Would you guarantee safe passage? Oh, and I just remember. Could you get your lumberjack to cut me some timber? To build the wall, y'all. Oh, 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 all right, let me set the context of where the story of Nehemiah fits into the overall story of Israel with a very quick timeline of where Nehemiah appears. Moses led Israel out of Egypt sometime around 1300 BC, give or take 100 years or so, according to scholars. Then Israel, under the leadership of Joshua, entered and occupied the promised land after a dark period of history known as the judges. There came the period of the kings of Israel, first Saul, then David, and his son Solomon. And Israel reaches its peak as a nation under David and his son Solomon. But after Solomon's reign, a long, slow decline begins for Israel as a people and they become increasingly unfaithful to God. Finally, Israel as a nation is pretty much finished off by the Babylonians around 587 BC. The city of Jerusalem is 
wiped out, and many Israelites are sent off into exile in the land of Babylon, especially the upper classes. And sometimes after this, the Babylonian empire is defeated by the rising Persian empire. This turns out to be good news for Israel because a significant number of Israelites are then allowed to return to their homeland under the Persian monarchy. They're allowed to go back to Jerusalem, and this is the setting for our story. Nehemiah lives in Persia, in the capital city of Persia, called Susa, around 450 BC. Now, if you take a look, this is the kind of the Persian empire. This is Jerusalem, way over here. And here's where Nehemiah is. He is a long way away from Jerusalem. He's serving in the Persian government as the cupbearer to the king of Persia. Now, it was the cupbearer's job to taste all the food and beverages before it was served to the king, not to make sure that it tastes good enough, but to make sure that the food and beverages had not been poisoned. You never had to ask a cupbearer, hey, honey, how was your day today? If they came back home alive at the end of the day, they had a good day. Now, you might ask, why would anybody want a job like that? Well, a cupbearer held a unique position in the courts of ancient kings. They were a combination of personal assistant, security guard, master of ceremonies for royalty. You see, fear of conspiracy and the constant threat of assassination caused a king to lead a relatively lonely life. Rare was the individual whom he completely trusted with his life, a man of wisdom, of discretion, an ability who had the king's interest at heart and who stayed informed about what was happening around him. Over time, an incredible bond of intimacy and trust developed between the king and his cupbearer. One historian said that a cupbearer, second only to a king's wife, was in a position to influence the monarch. So Nehemiah was doing very well for himself. He was well connected to the current king. He probably lived in the palace, surrounded by all the comforts and conveniences. His life is going pretty well until one day, some fellow Israelites from Jerusalem show up at his door. And here's what we read in the month of Kislev. That's about the ninth month in the Jewish calendar. And that corresponds to somewhere in our November, December timeframe, about this time of year. In the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanini, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And Nehemiah learns from these men that Jerusalem, the beloved city of his ancestors, is in great distress. Enemies surround them. The walls are still in ruins. The morale among the people is in shambles. But the part that really concerns Nehemiah is that God's whole dream of redeeming the world, of forming a redemptive community and living in covenant with them, of letting everybody on earth know there really is a God who created each of us and that we're all part of his story. That whole idea seems to be at risk. That idea did not exist anywhere other than in Israel. The nation of Israel are the people God chose to be the stewards of this idea to the world. So Nehemiah says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. He is wrecked by this news. God gave him what I like to call a holy heartache. You know what a holy heartache is? A holy heartache is when God lets you feel about something the way he feels about something. God let Nehemiah feel about the desperate conditions of the city of Jerusalem the way he feels about the desperate conditions of the city of Jerusalem. So what I want to want to, here's what I want to do today. We're going to walk through this story quickly, and I just want to highlight some of the things that characterize the life of somebody who God uses to make a difference. 
And the first characteristic of someone whom God uses to make a difference is pain. Pain. And I start here because difference making often begins with a holy heartache. There's a very personal, there's a very deep response to some area of brokenness in our world. How many of you remember this character named Popeye the Sailor Man? Anybody remember him? You're showing your age a little bit. Popeye had a saying. When something was going wrong, for example, when his nemesis Brutus was picking on Popeye's seriously undernourished girlfriend named Olive Oil, (laughs) or when his hamburger-loving good pal Wimpy was in trouble, or when a random baby named Little Sweet Pea, who seemed to be the child of no one, (laughs) was being menaced, Popeye might be passive for a while, but then he would say these famous words, that's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. In other words, Popeye said, I got to do something and I'll do whatever it takes. I'll even eat spinach if that's what it takes. By the way, did you know that in the 1930s when Popeye first appeared in comic strips and animated short films, spinach sales skyrocketed in the United States. In fact, one town in Texas, Crystal City, Texas, that's known as the spinach capital of the world, they erected a statue to Popeye right there to express their gratitude. Popeye is credited with saving the spinach industry because Popeye said, I'm done sitting around. I got to do something. I'll even eat spinach if that's what it takes to change things. You see, generally in the heart of a leader, before there's a vision of what could be done or what should be done, there's an intense, passionate frustration over some area where God's will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven. I think of a man named Wilbur, William Wilberforce, the frail little man from the English House of Commons who waged a career-defining fight against slavery in the English Parliament from 1787 until a bill was passed in 1807. I think of a Harriet Tubman who undermined slavery from the inside. Tubman not only successfully escaped from the horrors of slavery herself, but she became the conductor of the Underground Railroad that led dozens of slaves to freedom in the northern states. Or I think of a man named Millard Fuller in our own day. He was the founder of Habitat for Humanity. He saw families who did not have a roof over their heads, and he determined that affordable, clean, safe housing should be available to everyone, and he started building houses. Or I think of Bill Wilson, who helped to found Alcoholics Anonymous, who experienced the pain that alcoholism had caused in his own life, and had seen what it had done in the lives of many other people. You see, before any of these people had a vision of what they ought to do, they had a holy heartache deep within them that led them to say, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. I've got to do something. You see, instead of trying to distract themselves and ease that inner sense of discomfort, they would deliberately expose themselves to whatever bothered them, whether it was slavery, homeless people, people whose lives had been destroyed by alcoholism and addiction, children living in hopeless poverty. They would deliberately expose themselves to this and they would watch it and they would live in it and they would study it so that the fire inside them would burn brighter and brighter and brighter. That's where difference making so often begins. It begins with a sense of a holy heartache. Let me quickly say this. There's a difference between getting ticked off and experiencing a holy heartache. 
Ticked off people usually just tick other people off. Holy heartache moves quietly and maneuvers people into position to respond positively to the brokenness around them, often without them being even aware of it at first. Let me ask you, has that ever happened to you? I would like you to consider the possibility that if there is some area, I mean, something that really bothers you. Now, don't be bothered by everything. If you're bothered by everything, you're just a crank. <laughs> but if there's some area where God grabs your heart and there's a gnawing sense of sadness and discontent, consider the possibility God's calling you to make a difference there. That's what happens for Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, I sat down and wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. A vision that opens our eyes often begins with tears. That brings us to the second characteristic of someone who's a difference maker. The first one is pain. The second one is prayer. If you read through the book of Nehemiah, nine different prayers of Nehemiah are recorded in his book. In fact, it's been pointed out in many ways. The book of Nehemiah reads like a prayer journal. Prayer is a major component of Nehemiah's difference-making leadership. Most of the first chapter is a fabulous prayer where Nehemiah pours out his heart before God, and he does this morning and intermittent fasting and praying, not just for days, but for weeks and for months, and he confesses not only his personal sins in the present, but the national sins of his Israelites in the past, which shows us that though we may not be held responsible for the evil actions of people in the past, we can express sorrow and repentance for the residual evil effects of people's actions in the past. In chapter two, we're told in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. By the way, let me just say this. Any king that has the word tax in the middle of his name, don't vote for that guy. Bad news. <laughs> when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, Nisan is four months after the month of Kislev in the Hebrew calendar. It corresponds to somewhere in our springtime, March, April. The point being, Nehemiah spent about four months praying before he did anything else. Here's part of why this is such a powerful detail. Nehemiah was not naturally a contemplative person who liked to sit around and reflect and meditate and explore his inner world workings. That was not his sacred pathway of relating to God and even to other people. Several years ago, a guy named Gary Thomas wrote a book called Sacred Pathways, and he explains it like this. A sacred pathway has to do with the way we most naturally sense God's presence and experience spiritual growth. Sacred pathways are like doors that open into a room where we can sense and feel the nearness of God. Thomas points out that some people tend to be activists and some people tend to be reflective types. There's, there's more than just those two in the book. But activists, for example, they thrive on movement, decisiveness, confrontation. Their life motto is ready, fire, aim. They want to do something, even if it's wrong. For an activist, prayer is often a struggle. Reflectives, on the other hand, like to pray. It comes naturally to them. They love long times of contemplation. They're apt to be more thoughtful and deliberate and patient. Some of you tend to be reflectives. You like to think about things deeply. Some of you are activists. You run really hard. When an activist says, I'll call you, it means I'll call you sometime today, probably before you get home. When a reflective says, I'll call you, it means I'll call you sometime before I die, and probably right before. <laughs> Here's an indicator of Nehemiah's temperament. Later on in the book, Nehemiah hears about people who are disobeying God, 
by marrying outside the Jewish faith, turning away from God by worshiping the idols of their non-Jewish spouses, which is what got Israel into so much trouble in the first place. And this is Nehemiah's response. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name. Now, here's a question. See if you're paying attention. Do you think Nehemiah by nature was an activist or a reflective? <laughs> this guy's a hardcore activist, the kind that will pull your hair out, literally. But the sad news of the deplorable conditions of Jerusalem stopped him dead in his tracks. When he first hears this devastating news for four months, the only thing he can do is pour out his heart to God in prayer. For four months, a holy fire is burning inside him, but he doesn't do anything with it except pray. And I want you to listen. Nehemiah did more than pray, but he didn't do anything until he prayed. Nehemiah did more than pray, but he didn't do anything until he prayed. And that's where difference making starts. Difference making always starts with time with God. And so Nehemiah, this hard charging, hair pulling activist spends four months just in prayer. And then he goes to talk to his boss, the king. And that's the third characteristic of the difference maker. Petition. People who make a difference learn to ask for things and to ask for them boldly. They realize they can't do very much on their own, so they're not afraid to ask others to join them. This is a very dramatic scene. You see, one of the reasons why Jerusalem lays in ruins is because of this very king, Artaxerxes. He had issued an edict years prior that brought all construction projects in Jerusalem to a halt because he was afraid opposition would rise up against him out in the west in Jerusalem. Nehemiah has to go to that king and convince him to reverse his foreign policy and allow the walls of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And he pleads his case with great skill. He has built tremendous trust with the king. And ultimately, Artaxerxes gives him the green light. And he says, okay, you can rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But Nehemiah doesn't stop there. Nehemiah gets on a roll and he keeps going. And he says, also, king, I need letters of reference from you to give me authority. In other words, I need your authorization and power. Would you mind writing a letter up for me like that? And oh yeah, we're going to have to stop by Home Depot to purchase supplies for rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Would you mind paying for that king? And one last thing, would you allow the royal lumber to be cut down from the royal forest? Basically, king, would you pay for the construction of the walls of Jerusalem out of your royal budget? This dude's gutsy. Nehemiah shows amazing boldness and resourcefulness. One person wholly devoted to a cause bigger than himself is hard to resist. And the king stunningly says, okay, I'll do all you ask. And Nehemiah's comment on this, and because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. There's a special kind of humility in Nehemiah that I love. He's not just saying words that seem modest. He really means it when he says it wasn't me. It wasn't even the king. It was just God put his hand of favor and blessing on us. Nehemiah finally arrives in Jerusalem. Before he does anything else, he goes out at night and he secretly inspects the walls in Jerusalem to see how bad things really are. He wanted firsthand knowledge of how bad things were. Why? First class leaders don't always rely on secondhand reports because the facts are often filtered through other people and they tell the leader what they think he wants to hear or what they want him to hear. Really smart leader says, I'm going to look for myself. I want to see what's really going on here. Nehemiah walked before he talked, he investigated before he initiated. 
But there's another dynamic at work here. Nehemiah is deliberately exposing himself to the full extent of this tragedy, to the broken conditions of the city of Jerusalem, so that his commitment to do what God asked him to do goes all the way down to the core of his being, and he rides around. And he says to himself, it's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. He gets to the place where no difficulty, no obstacle, no opposition will distract him from what God's calling him to do. He personally embraces the mess, and now he's ready. And he pulls the leaders of Jerusalem together, and he says to them, you see the trouble we are in. Notice the word, his use of the word we here. He didn't show up and say, I see the trouble you're in, and lucky for you, I've come to fix it. A detached outsider who tells you everything's wrong, not very motivating. Difference makers identify with problems before they specify solutions. Now, what Nehemiah says is not new information to anyone. Everyone already knows Jerusalem's in a mess, but they've learned to live with it. They've grown accustomed to living without walls. The inconveniences and the dangers of life without walls had become part of their lifestyle. It doesn't seem to bother them anymore. Have you ever moved into a new house or an apartment and you found things wrong with it that you needed to address and you write everything down on the list, but you don't get around to it. And after a month or two, you find out it doesn't bother you so much anymore. Andy Stanley says there's a principle at work here. Here's the principle. Time in erodes awareness of. Time in erodes awareness of. And Nehemiah gathers the leaders together and he says the conditions in the city of Jerusalem are unacceptable for God's covenant people. Your time in here has eroded your awareness of these unacceptable conditions. Nehemiah knew this wasn't so much about rebuilding a wall around a city as it was reestablishing a context for God to demonstrate his power and to fulfill his covenant promises to the nation of Israel and ultimately to the nations of the world. So Nehemiah boldly cast the vision. Come, let's build the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. You see, just one person who has this fire, one person who's courageous and clear enough to name it. And the people said, okay, let's do it. And they began the good work. That brings us to the fourth characteristic of a difference maker. First, there's pain. Then there's a commitment to prayer. Then there's a willingness to petition others to help. And fourthly, difference makers are proactive. Most of us, you see, when we hear about a mess somewhere in the world, or when we hear that things are broken somewhere, here's what we do. That's too bad. Tough break for them. Somebody ought to do something about that. John Ortberg writes, sometimes I'm tempted to give myself credit because I have a good heart and empathetic feelings about something. Somebody ought to feed those hungry people. Somebody ought to educate those poor kids. Somebody ought to reach out to people who don't know about God. He says, I'm against hunger and homelessness and against poverty, both materially and spiritually. But difference makers actually do something. Nehemiah hears about the trouble. And even though he's living a long way off in another country and his life's going really well, when he hears about it, he prays for days. And then he risks his comfort by going to the king. And then he gets foreign policy changed. And then he secures royal protection. And then he gets the king to write a check to cover the cost. And then he resigns his cushy, high-level job. And then he left his home in Persia. And then he exposed his heart to the broken, busted conditions in the city of Jerusalem. And then he drew up some plans. And then he called the leaders together. And then he cast a bold vision. And then the people agreed. And then miracle of miracles, they have a groundbreaking ceremony. And they begin the actual work. And it's all just a piece of cake from there, right? 
Everything's just like running downhill from there on. Not so much. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Now, when they say, what is this you're doing, they're not just looking for information, you understand. This is like a parent asking a child, do you want to be grounded? You don't expect the child to say, let me give it some serious thought and get back to you in about a week. <laughs> what is this you're doing was not an attempt to sincerely gain information they were lacking. This was a sarcastic accusation that Nehemiah's claim to have permission from the king was a lie. They're slandering his integrity. Who are these guys? Why are they important? Well, these guys represent the nation surrounding the city of Jerusalem at this time. Take a look at this map. Off to the west of Israel, Mediterranean Sea. Up to the north of Samaria. It's where Sanballat comes down from. Tobiah the Ammonite comes from the northeast to the south. East and west is Moab and Edom and below that is Arabia. And Geshem the Arab is from the south. Israel is literally surrounded by people groups who are hostile to their existence, not unlike today. Seven times in Nehemiah, we find this formula. Whenever the work advances, whenever something good happens, it's almost always followed by this phrase, when they heard, when they heard. Some member of these opposition groups hears about it and tries to disrupt their work. You see, every single advance of Nehemiah's efforts is met by opposition. Every time he pushes ahead, there's a pushback. In fact, as you read through Nehemiah, you'll see at least seven different forms of opposition. They are derision, discouragement, dread, discord, division, defamation, and danger. I went into much more detail about that in that series from several years ago. And I don't know about you, but there's a part of me that thinks that's not fair. Life ought to be a little easier. I mean, if I try to do a good thing, I ought to get some credit for it, and life ought to get a little easier. I mean, sometimes, somewhere, I'd like to push that easy button that we used to see in those old commercials. Remember those? But the reality is, life's not a playground. It's a battlefield. One guy wrote, no soldier ever goes into battle and says, hey, they're shooting at me. I wasn't expecting this. No football player ever goes into a game and says, hey, they're trying to tackle me. No player surprised when the opposing team tries to tackle him unless he's playing against the Jacksonville Jaguars. <laughs> I would say the Miami Dolphins, but they're actually good this year. Yeah, Pastor Dustin over here. Every time Nehemiah pushes ahead, opposition pushes back. So that leads to another characteristic of a difference maker. The fifth characteristic is persistence persistence. Difference making requires persistence. Let me tell you, probably about 80% of leadership is just God focused, spirit empowered, roll up my sleeves. I'll put my hand to the plow. And as God helps me, I'll keep going. I won't back down and I won't look back. Some of you are seeking to make a difference for God. And there's something that you're seeking to change through God's power. Most likely it's something in your personal life. Maybe it's a habit you're trying to break free from. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your family. Or maybe it's something in the world around you and you've hit a wall of opposition. Well, of course you have. Did you think you wouldn't? 
We're in a fallen race, living in a fallen place. We can't overcome all these problems on our own. We can only trust God and persist. That's why one of my favorite scriptures is Proverbs 24, 16. Though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. What do you do when you get knocked down? In the immortal words of the rock band Chumbawamba, I get knocked down, but I get back up again. I was going to try to sing that, but that would be bad for everybody. Nehemiah and his fellow Israelites persevere together. And finally, the day comes. They lay the last brick in the wall. The wall's complete. They've done it. How long do you think this project took for Nehemiah and the people to rebuild the wall that surrounded the city of Jerusalem? Here's what it says. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. He built a wall, y'all, in 52 days. Have you ever heard of a construction project that was completed before the deadline and under budget, and it was a government project? <laughs> Biblical scholars like to point out there's no dramatic, out-of-the-ordinary miracles recorded in the book of Nehemiah, but based on that information, I would beg to differ. This leads to the sixth characteristic in the life of a difference maker, and the final one, pleasure. If you read through the book, this is a description of the people when they gather together after the project is complete and God's redemptive dream for the world is starting with Israel, starting with Israel is alive again. It cost them a lot. But look at the joy of that assembly. Ezra read from the book of the law from daybreak till noon and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Six hours of reading and teaching from the law of God and the people listened attentively. Another minor miracle, if you ask me. People sometimes ask me, Pastor, what's the length of a sermon from a biblical point of view? I say to them, you don't want to know. The book's climax comes not simply with a wall finished, but with the worship of God who has spoken and whose word will not fail. And by the way, this Friday night, we're going to have a worship night, a worship of God night for those that are completed, rooted, and for all of us who have completed, rooted, just going to be a time to come together and just lift our voices up to God. When we hear the word law, our minds conjure up negative connotations. We think of that which restricts and confines, not these people. For them, the law wasn't about constrictions. It was about covenant. It was about how God, for no reason at all, had said, I'm going to call a people to myself, and through them, I'm going to bless the whole world. I'm going to reveal my intention for human life through them. And one day, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's such a powerful and beautiful thing that when they hear God's words and realize how far short they've fallen, they weep, much like Nehemiah wept. Their hearts are convicted and broken as they look at the walls broken down in their own personal lives. And then Nehemiah encourages them and he comforts them with one of my very favorite verses in the entire Bible. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's a fabulous commandment. There is a time for weeping, and the people did weep, and they confessed their sins. There's a time for that, but Nehemiah says, at the end of the day, the bottom line is not about our brokenness. It's about God's goodness. The good news that God is our God and that he loves us, even though we've fallen so short, he's a gracious God. 
The psalmist declared this, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So friends, do things that bring pleasure. Go and eat, not just food, but choice food. Go and drink, not just drink, but sweet drinks. Not just tea, but sweet tea the way God intended it to be. (laughs) Do something that will bring you joy and give something to people who have nothing. Because this is about living in community where everybody's welcome and nobody's perfect. And through Jesus, anything is possible. Would you notice this? Listen. I love this. It's, it's not the sorrow of the Lord is our strength. It's not the judgment of the Lord is our strength. Those are very real and very important. But they're not our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Everybody say that with me right now. The joy of the Lord is our strength. That's what kept our Lord going as he faced the cross. The Hebrews writer says it like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses like Nehemiah, let us throw off everything that, in, that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such, such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You can see in those short verses, Everything Nehemiah experienced, Jesus experienced, and then some. And yet in spite of the pain, in spite of the weight of our sin that he was carrying for us, in spite of the continual opposition that dogged him right to his dying breath, the joy of the Lord was his strength, and he endured, and he emerged victorious. And that's what helps us get back up again when we're knocked down. And that's what keeps us coming back over and over and over again. Amen? Stand with me right now. Lake County, would you stand with me? Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to come together today to worship you, just to lift our voices in worship, to read from your words like the ancient people, and to be reminded the joy of the Lord is our strength bottom line of our life is not our brokenness, it's your goodness and we rejoice in that and we thank you for that and it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured and so we keep joy as our focus joy in Jesus joy that only he can give that the world can't take away regardless of what happens around us help us to be difference makers in the name of the greatest difference maker In the history of all time, Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray and we all said, amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible.